As I said earlier, this is the last week of the series, uh, Generous Justice, where we're looking at Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And if you weren't here that first week, we looked at this text in Micah chapter 4, actually, where we looked to see that in Micah, the pattern was there was these words of judgment three times, words of judgment, then words of hope, words of judgment, words of hope, words of judgment, words of hope. And in the middle, the hope that we see is God is preparing a kingdom, a place that at the end of time where there will be true justice, that God will be our God and there will be no more arguments, there'll be no more wars and all these implements of war will be beaten into things of peace and there will be justice because God will be with us. And it's important to see because what we see and what we believe about our future actually determines how we live in the present. What we believe about our future will determine how we live in the present. And so it's a reminder that in the future, everything will be put right. And so in the present, we're called to live accordingly. And then in week two, as we looked in this series, we said, well, how is it or, or what is it to do justice? And, and we looked at this word justice and this Hebrew word mishpat, which means that giving people what they are due, whether it's punishment Justice isn't just punishing the wrongdoers, but it's not just punishing, but protection or care of those who are unjustly treated, who are not given what they are due. And this is the definition that we use from Bruce Waltke. It said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. To do justice, to do biblical justice, we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of our neighbor. And then last week, we answered the question, well, why, would, why in the world would we do that? Well, Scripture is clear. We do that because of what has been done for us. Is that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. We are justified by grace, not by what we have done, not by our works, but it is a gift from God so that we don't boast. And so why do we do it? Because that's what God has done for us. That's why we would disadvantage ourselves, because God himself disadvantaged himself for my sake. And so this week we're going to seek to answer the question, and that is, how then do we do justice? How do we do justice in a world that would say disadvantaging yourself to advantage others is absolutely insane? It's crazy. It's ridiculous that you would do something like that. So how are we called to do justice today? Before we get there, I'd ask if you would bow your heads and pray with me as we begin. Father, we gather in this name of Jesus, this name that is above all names, a name that as we pause and we consider all that that name means and the implications of that name upon our life and, and the lives of all, it's just too much for for my heart to comprehend, too much for my head to imagine. And so this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. My words would be your words, that you would teach us and shape us all. And I ask that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, how many of you have been snow skiing before? And like, like oh, yeah, last, last service, like no one. But anyway, so like Colorado snow skiing, anybody? Yeah? 
Well, first time I went snow skiing ever was in Colorado. And I was 19 years old, and there were four of us that went out there. None of us knew how to snow ski except one guy, Nate. And Nate said, I can teach you how to do it. And I'm like, okay, great. So we got in a car, we piled out, and we went out to Colorado, and we went to Keystone for the very first time. And we went to this beginner's hill, which looked like, like ridiculous. You know, it's like five, ten times taller than four lakes over here. You know, it takes you a couple of minutes to get down. And so it's like, okay, we're going to go up the lift and wait for me when you get off the top, right? And so you get on the lift, and then you're looking how you get off the lift, and you're like, well, how do I get off the lift? I, I don't want to circle my way back down in front of everybody, right? So I'm going to have to get off the lift. And so I actually got off the lift and felt pretty good about myself, so much so that I didn't wait for Nate. I just went over to the top of the mountain, and I'm like, I can do this. And down the mountain I went. And I'm just picking up speed, and I'm just looking around going, this is so cool. And then I look down, and here's all these people down at the bottom of the hill waiting to get on the lift. And there's nothing between me and them. And I'm thinking, real quick, all this is happening in my head. It's like, how am I going to stop? I'm like, I'm going to kill somebody because I'm going pretty fast, and I can't stop. No one, I don't know how to stop. And so what do you think I did? I just fell over. I just, boom, over on the side. I just tumbled down the mountain in front of everybody on the lift, right? And I get up, and there's guys pointing down at me, laughing, you know, and I'm like, eh, okay. And then I pick up my skis, and I walk down the rest of the mountain. And what do you think I did then? I waited for Nate. <laughs> and so we went back up the mountain, and we got off the ski lift, and I waited for Nate. And so it was like the rest, about half the day, we spent on the, called Bunny Hill, right? I didn't like calling it Bunny, Beginner's Hill. And we, we skied that for like a half a day. And by the end of the week, I could ski fairly well and felt pretty good about myself. But not at first. I was pretty full of myself when I got off of that ski lift. And I ended up doing probably some damage to my body, which I'm still paying for today, which is probably why I'm on crutches. Because I just, I just beat the crap out of my body as a young, younger adult because that's just who I was, and to a large degree, that's still who I am. And the reason I tell you this is because what happens to us when we're younger, we think we're invincible, and we can do all these things, and, and we're just so full of ourselves. And, and it's really dangerous, because if we're not careful, we can really do harm to ourselves and others. And I just thank God I didn't kill someone, and I didn't kill myself, but I could have. And so we have to be really careful. And I think the same thing is true of when we do justice or when we try to do justice or we try to be like Jesus on our own. I think we can do some really big damage. And, and history is full of, of examples where in our own power, we try to be like Jesus, thinking we can do it on our own. And we end up leaving corpses in our, in our path. And so today, as we look at this question of how is it then do we do justice, we look to Micah again. And, and in that chapter, I think we see, in this verse, we see how we do it. And it's the very end, humbly. That's how we're called to do justice, humbly. Not full of pride, not trying to do it all on our own, but humbly, walking with God. Not on our own, not out in front of God, not by ourselves, not ignoring him, but with him. Humbly is admitting that I can't do it by myself. I'd like to think that I'm 
bright enough, I can get more skilled enough to get myself down the mountain on my own, but <laughs> I can't. And I can try to be like Jesus on my own, in my own power, but I just can't. I'm going to fail. I might for a while, but I'm going to fail. And in doing so, I can do a lot of damage. And the same thing comes even in a, in a, in a I think, a very righteous endeavor of trying to do justice in this world. In my own power, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw it up. And so today we have to look and say, how is it we do it? What does God mean? And how actually do we walk humbly with our God in order to do justice in this world? Well, first of all, we want to look and see what this word humbly means in the text. And it means to show a humble action in a manner respectful and careful of another's direction and, and to do so modestly, attentively, and deliberately. You see that definition? It says to show a humble action Right? but in a manner that is other-centered, that considers the other person and the direction that they're headed. Not the direction I want to go, not where I want them to go, or not what I want for them, but the direction that they're headed. I'm called to come along and think of them modestly, not thinking of myself as better than them, but also attentive to their needs and doing so deliberately. That's, that's a big call. But that's what it means to be humble. And, and we see that. That's what God asks of us. But first and foremost, that's who God is. It's actually a character of God. And we see that the psalmist writes about God. He says, the Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who's like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? I mean, there's no one like him. But yet we're told that he stoops down. He humbles himself to look on the heavens and the earth. Far above the heavens and the earth, everything that he's created, but yet he stoops down. He doesn't stay at a distance. He actually is concerned about us, about his creation, and he is attentive to it. So much so, we're told that he sends his son, not just to stand off at a distance, but to actually become one of us. And not just become one of us, but to give his life for us. Everything about Jesus was done from the humility of God. As great a being as he is, he humbled himself. He came into this cesspool called earth and became one of us. I mean, that humility itself is so far above what I can imagine I can't imagine doing what he's done. But yet he did that for me, and he did that for each one of us, because that's his nature. He's just, but he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's humble. I mean, that's, that's hard to understand how a God that great would, would humble himself for us, for me. It's too lofty for me to grasp. But that's what we're told he's done. And, and this definition of humility that, that Rick Warren came, with, came up with, I think is a, is a good one to talk about him. It says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? Doesn't that really define what Jesus has done? He didn't think of himself. 
He didn't didn't do this. God did not do this for himself. He was complete. He's He's a fully complete being, lacking nothing. He created us because he desires us to experience his love and his relationship. This creation was not for his benefit, but for ours. And so everything he has done is for my benefit. It is for me. Thinking of me, thinking of you, that is why he created this world. That is why he gave us choice. Thinking of you, wanting you to experience love. That was his desire for you. And to do that required him to think of you rather than himself, to value you above himself. That's true godlike humility. And yet scripture tells us that we are to walk humbly with him as he walked with us. And that just seems so hard. And I, I know it's hard because I, I look in the text that we read today and we see the men that actually walked with him, who actually, Jesus actually physically walked with them on this planet and, and they experienced him. And yet they still failed at, at walking humbly with their God, even though the very embodiment of humility was right there with them and they saw it every day and, and they still Still didn't get it. You know, this text that we read in Matthew, we, we read earlier, you, you heard that read, right? Where Matthew says that John and James, that were the sons of Zebedee, it was their mother, right? I mean, how ridiculous is that? That sounds like so 2021, right? Where your mother shows up for you and if you get a bad review at work, your mom shows up and says, oh, I don't, I don't think you're treating my son well, right? I mean, what has changed in this world? And so their mom goes to Jesus. I'm like, oh my gosh. I don't think I could show my face again. I think I'd leave the 12. But, but she goes and says, I want my sons to have honor in your kingdom. And he's like, I don't think you know what you're asking. He says, they're going to be humble, but they can't do what it is I'm going to do. And in fact, Jesus there in the midst of the text humbles himself because he says, it's not for me to decide. It's something that the Father has already decided. Jesus, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit, is deferential to the Father and submits to the Father and to his authority and says, no, he humbles himself. It's not, I can't decide that. That's the Father's doing. But then, you know, he, he, they come back and the, the other 10 disciples are like, <laughs> it says indignant. That's really a kind word there. You know, because you can imagine Right? They're ticked. And, and, they're, and they're ticked because they didn't think of it first. Right? It's like, well, you know, they're mad at John and James because they didn't think of it. They all wanted to be. That's why they're mad. Because they thought they were better and they, they didn't think of it first. And then, so Jesus corrects them. He doesn't say you shouldn't ask for that. He doesn't reprimand them for that. He just says, no, you've got a wrong idea of what it means to lead, what it means to to be an authority in my kingdom. This world has a whole different way of, of practicing what it means to live in authority, right? You, 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 you are an authority and you're, you're, you serve in authority. Why? Because you benefit from that, 
right? I become CEO of the company, and now that I'm CEO of the company, I deserve certain treatments. I deserve to be treated like the CEO of the company. And Jesus is like, that's not my kingdom. So you, you're, you're, you're completely wrong, and, and you're, you're skewed in what you think. Because this is what he goes on to say about them and what it is that his kingdom looks like in, in their midst. He says this. It says, so when, he heard, when they heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, sometimes we would say, you know, and, and so whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Right? And we, that's God's kingdom. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because he goes on, he says, just as the Son of Man, just as I did not come to be served, but to serve. Just as this God, this almighty God, so far above us, came into the world, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what it means to rule in God's kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be great, you must make yourself a servant of all. That is what true humility looks like. But they still didn't get it. Right? You didn't, they didn't get it because read the text. And maybe it's subtle. And so it's subtle, but I, I, I think it's hysterical, actually, when you think about what's being said here. Matthew's writing. Matthew's one of the disciples. He was one of the ten. Right? And this is years later. And Matthew tells a story about James and John. What does that tell you? He's still a little bit bent out of shape about the story, isn't he? Right? He's telling a story about James and John. You think those guys are... Yeah, let me tell you about what their mom did for them. And you know, the other thing that's telling is we read this same story in the Gospel of Mark. You want to know why that's interesting? Because who's Mark's source in his Gospel? We believe it was Peter. And so Peter tells the story to Mark, and Mark includes it in his gospel. So here you have Peter and Matthew, one of two of the ten, telling the same story about James and John. But it's not in John's gospel. John doesn't tell the story on himself. Right? So we get to see just how human they are and just how full of pride they still are, even after Jesus has been risen from the dead, even though they have the Spirit of God living in them, there's still this humanity in them that has a hard time truly being like Jesus. They understand, and, and, and it's just, it just comes out. But that doesn't mean that they were powerless but they still didn't get it, right? I mean, there was another time in Mark chapter 9, I know it's recorded there and I know it's recorded elsewhere, where, you know, they're having this other argument and they're asking this question in this other argument. They're, they're walking along the road and, and Jesus knows what they're thinking. And this is what it said. It says, uh, they were walking and they were going to this house, but they kept quiet because they had argued on the road who was the greatest. 
And, and they kept quiet because they, they knew what Jesus would think about that, right? But like we're talk- and they knew what he would say, that this, is, this would not be a good argument, so they didn't say anything, but yet Jesus knows what they're saying, right? And it says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone, anyone, he said, whoever wants to be first must welcome these children, and whoever welcomes these children welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. See, in Jesus, in this first century, children would have been down the ladder of, of those who would have been considered worthy. They, they would have been below the women. and They would have been just above the slave. They would not have been considered worthy or, or significant, especially young little girls, right? Young boys a little more so, but little girls not so much. And yet Jesus calls his disciples and said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, serve the least of these. You must be their servant. You must serve their needs. See, serving children is an outflow of an understanding of what God has done, right? It's an understanding that he came down and served me. And and then he says to this disciple, see, you still don't get it. I didn't just come for you. I came for the least of these. And if you desire to be my disciple, if you truly desire to be great in my kingdom, then become a servant. Become a true servant, serving others that you think are less than you. Walk humbly with your God. But here's the thing about humility. It's not something you can produce in yourself. C.S. Lewis says this way. He says, a really humble man will not be thinking about humility. In fact, He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not something you can do. Humility is something that is produced in you. You can't work at being more humble. The more you try to work at being humble, the more you masquerade, you're just masquerading the pride that is within you. Humility is something that is produced in you. When, when you come to realize that what you thought you could do, what you thought you knew, what you thought you had the power within you to do, you come to realize you have no idea how to stop before the end of the mountain. And the circumstance humbles you. And that's how we are humbled through circumstances. And God so desires for us to be humbled because he himself humbled himself. And the way he desires for us to be humbled is to walk with him, to see true humility in real life, to walk with him in his word, to to walk beside him and, and experience him in the gospels and to see him live his life amongst this cesspool called earth and how we actually did that and and then we come to realize it's like wait a minute that means he did that for me that means he humbled himself for me he's walked with me and and I'm saying I, I would never do that and how can I say how can I say I could do less but yet he continues to walk with me even though 
I think less of others and more of myself. He doesn't leave me. He doesn't forsake me. He continues to walk with this prideful man who's learned nothing from that 19-year-old man. But yet God still is patient with me and he walks with me. He's still humbling himself and walking with me and he just asked me to walk with him and to watch him, not to outpace him, but to walk with him, with him, and to learn from him. And he says, you will learn from me. And that's what Paul encourages us to remember. And he paints this beautiful picture of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, this is what Paul writes. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't do this for yourself. That's not what Jesus did. He did not do this for himself. He disadvantaged himself. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. I don't know about you, but that, that is far above anything I believe I can do. I, I, not, I take that back. I think I can do that sometimes. I really do. If I'm honest, I think I can do that sometimes. But at the heart of that is really a selfish motive. There's probably something in it for me somewhere. But when I walk with Jesus, he breaks my heart. And he crushes my heart, but in a good way. Because he reminds me of what he's done. All right, he goes on to say, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, to the interests of others. See, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about others. You're thinking about him because that's who Jesus has his eye on, others. He has his eye on you and he has his eye on others and he desires you to look where he's looking. He says, in your relationships with one another, see, we want to say, God, I love you. Show me how I love you. Show me how I can love you. And he says, love your neighbor. And you're going, okay, but show me how I can love you. I really want to love you. Love your neighbor. Great. Show me how I can love you, right? I really want to love you. I want to pour my love out on you. And he says, love your neighbor. And that's his answer. And so he goes on, who being in very nature God, in your relationship, have this mindset of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. See, he is God. And he comes down to earth and he walks among us and he's treated like trash. He's treated like the least. He's treated like a leper or somebody possessed by a demon and thought of as a crazy man. And never once did he say, well, you know, I'm God. And if you keep that up, that's it for you. Right? He never once got indignant and said, who do you think you are? You think you're the only one on the road today? You can't use your turn signal once? Never once did he use that title, his, what is due him. Never once did he demand to be treated that way, but yet he made himself nothing. He goes on to say, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And not if that wasn't enough, but being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
He died the most humiliating death for you. Because he loved you. That's how other-centered, how other-focused, how truly humble our God is. That he would give his life. Be demeaned, be ridiculed, be beaten so that I could experience love from him. I just, it just completely turns me upside down when I sit and ponder that for a moment. He calls us to do justice in this world, and the only way that we can absolutely try to do justice in this world as he would have us do it is we have to keep our eye focused on him. Because once we look down and start looking at ourselves, then we're, we're sunk <laughs> because we're going to serve ourselves. And he says, so walk humbly with me. If we want to do justice in this world, I think one of the things that we could ask ourselves, I think a good question that we could ask ourselves if we're wondering, what is it that God's asking me to do, is ask this question in every circumstance. What does it look like to love God and to love your neighbor in this situation? What would it look like for me to love God and my neighbor in this situation? I know how I'd like to answer that question. But if we're still and we're quiet and we want to sit at his feet and walk with him and learn from him, we ask this question, what would it look like? What's God asking me to do in this situation? How do I pour my love out on him? He says, pour it out on your neighbor. Not just your neighbor, but your enemy. Pray for your enemies. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I don't know about you, I can't do that on my own. It requires God to walk with me, and the beautiful thing about that verse is he says he will. Walk humbly with our God. He says, our God. Not a God, but our God. He is our God. He is our Father. And he so desires to walk alongside you because what this world promises is that if we'll focus on self, if we'll focus on the things of this world, then we'll be filled up, and we will be great. But the lie in that is that the more we focus on ourselves, the emptier we become. And Jesus is coming and saying, if you'll focus on me, if you'll, if you'll keep your eye on me, actually the fuller, the, 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 the fullness of life will be produced in you. And, and you, will, you will experience a life that Jesus desires for you to live and a desire that he wants you to know. And that's the joy that it is to actually keep your eye on him and do for others. In a way, humility is something that is produced in us. It is the outflow of the relationship with Jesus. Humility is the outflow of our relationship with Jesus. It is the only way humility is produced in us. It is through Jesus. And so if we want to be still and we truly desire to walk humbly with our God, we must keep our eyes focused on the cross. Because it's there that we see true humility played out. Jesus said, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the question was, where did I see you thirsty? Where did I see you naked? Where did I see you imprisoned? And the answer is on the cross. That's where we saw him that way. And he was that way 
for all of us. And he calls us to keep our eyes focused on him. And he promises to produce that life in us, to produce a life that is humble, to, to, to be somebody in this world that the world looks at and is puzzled and wonders, well, why? And we get to say, because that's what my Savior did for me. And so this morning, I, I want to end this message by doing something I think that at least I feel compelled to do this morning. And if we're truly going to walk with Jesus, I think we have to admit that we don't always walk with Jesus. So often we, we veer off the path and we go our own way. But as Scripture teaches us, he's faithful and true. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and true and he will forgive us our sins and, and purify us from all unrighteousness. And he creates in us that clean heart as we confess to him. I was reading Brian Stevenson, a pastor, an advocate for social justice in our world today, and he says if we're truly going to experience liberation, then we have to acknowledge what we've done. As a people, as a country, we have to acknowledge the injustice that's been experienced in this world, in this country, in our communities. We have to acknowledge what we've done. And so this morning, I believe the first step as we step out this door today is, is to repent, is to actually acknowledge what we've done, that we have gone astray. As individuals, we have gone astray. And we've gone our own way and not kept our eye on Jesus and tried to go on our own strength and in a lot of ways not even practicing humility, not even worried about it. So this morning, I want to ask you if you would stand. And we've done this a couple times before, but I want to lead you through this prayer. It's called a posture of prayer, and it's a time of confession. It's a time to come before our Lord and just confess that by ourselves, God, we can do nothing. And so we stand in your presence today with our fists held above our heads, clenched, and we admit to you that we fight for what is ours. And we defend what is ours, what we've worked so hard for, what we believe we deserve. And Father, we open up our hands and we surrender. We pray that you would produce in us a heart of surrender to your ways and that you would create in us a heart for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized that you would create in us a heart that seeks to set what is wrong, to set it right. That it would be retributive, this justice would be reparative. Father, we also take our hands and we clench them before us and, and we admit to you, Father, that we are selfish. That we are selfish and what we have, we want to keep for ourselves and use for our purposes and and we really don't want to share. At least without getting something in return. And so, Father, we open up our hands and we pray that you would create in us a generous heart. A heart that seeks to give from the many blessings that you've given us. That those blessings would overflow from our lives into the lives of the world around us, that people could come to see the generous God that we serve through the generosity of the heart that you've recreated in within us. 
and we cross our arms across our chest and, and we confess to you this morning that we wall ourselves off. We look the other way. We try not to see what's before us. We keep ourselves isolated away from opportunities, protecting ourselves. But Father, we open up our arms wide as Jesus did on the cross and we ask you to create in us a heart for your mission, a heart for the world, a heart for the broken, the oppressed, and the marginalized in our world. Willing to disadvantage ourselves to advantage the world around us. Because that is what you did for us. Father, we confess these sins before you this morning because you are faithful and true and promise to forgive us our sins. And we pray, create that clean heart in us, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.